Jonathan Capehart, and I'm in for Leonard Lopate. This is WNYC, WNYC.org. At the beginning of every year, millions of Americans make New Year's resolutions to lose weight. But what if those extra pounds that we love to hate are more than unwanted blubber, but an organ, as critical to our health as the heart or brain? On this week's Please Explain segment, we take a look at our fat, why it's there, and how to get rid of it. I'm joined by biochemist Dr. Sylvia Tara, the author of The Secret Life of Fat, The Science Behind the Body's Least Understood Organ and What It Means for You. The book is published by Norton, and I'm very pleased to bring Sylvia Tara to the show today. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Great to be here. Okay. Fat is an organ? I mean, it's not like the heart or the brain. I mean, fat is spread throughout the body. So how is it an organ? It's very much an organ like your pituitary gland or thyroid gland. So when you think about fat, fat, you know, the molecule of fat is for energy. But fat belongs in cells and cells belong in fat tissue. And fat tissue collectively around our body is actually an organ. And so fat as an organ can do things that fat as a molecule cannot. So fat can release hormones, a number of very important hormones into our body. And our body really depends on this hormones to function optimally. For example, our brain size is actually linked to fat. Um, Our immune system is strengthened by fat. Um, Our reproductive system is dependent on fat. Within three pounds, you can turn on and off a woman's reproductive system with three pounds of fat. So it's very important to our body. And because it's so important, our body has ways to protect fat. And you really have to understand all of this if you want to control your fat. Well, and, and that's the thing. Well, wait a minute. You said our body has a way of controlling fat. But, you know, reading your book, I mean, I couldn't help but thinking of the movie Alien with Sigourney Weaver. And, you know, this thing comes busting out of this guy. And, you know, you even have chapters in the book where the where fat is an organ that basically has a life of its own. You say that fat has fat has ears fat can listen yeah. fat can talk yes. the body to me doesn't sound like it has any control whatsoever over fat it's the other way around you have to work with your fat and not against it if you want to lose it you have to understand it you have to understand how it works and coax it into getting off your body it's not as simple as you might think there's plenty of people who have no weight problem or they have a very simple weight problem. They can eat a little bit less and lose some weight. No no issue. It's really for people, this book, who have very stubborn fat like I do. It won't leave you. And in that case, you better start listening to it, understanding it, and working with it. But uh, so this, stub- this stubborn fat, I mean, we'll never get it. We'll never, ever, ever, ever get away, get, get that kind of fat off of us. No, you definitely can get that kind of fat off of you. you I can. got it off of me. I kept it off. 30 pounds. It's gone for years now. And so let's talk about fat a little bit. Yeah. So fat actually produces a hormone called leptin. And leptin has a lot of control on our appetite and our metabolism. When fat releases leptin into the blood, it goes into the bloodstream, binds to our brain, the hypothalamus region, and it tells your brain, you can stop eating now. We're pretty full. You can stop. So in this way, fat can actually talk. It talks to your brain, tells it we're full. 
It also controls metabolism. So with less leptin, when we diet, we lose fat and we have less leptin. And when that happens, we get a higher appetite because there's less of it. Our brains are, are noticing there's less. It's, it's being withheld. It's not getting the signal that we're full anymore. Our muscles also bind with leptin. And when we have less leptin, they become more efficient. Our metabolism goes down. And in some way, this is fat's way of telling the body, hey, I'm diminishing here. I need to come back. You know, get hungry and lower your metabolism. It's a drive to regain the weight. And if you don't understand that it's very hard because you are hungrier, you're, you're uh, more efficient in your metabolism, so you're burning fewer calories, and you can't understand why you can't get these extra 10 pounds off. And now because we're more efficient, we actually need less food after we've lost weight than before. So say someone's at 150 pounds naturally, they can eat a, a nice normal meal. But once someone's lost, say, 10% of their weight, so they're at 170 and they lost 20 pounds to get to 150, they actually have to eat 22% fewer calories than someone who's at 150 pounds naturally without dieting. So there's a caloric penalty when you lose weight. You have to mm. eat less than before and less than someone who's naturally at that weight to begin with. I'm speaking with Dr. Sylvia Tara about her new book, The Secret Life of Fat, the science behind the body's least understood organ and what it means for you. One thing you didn't say, because I'm still focused in on the fact that fat's an organ and that basically it has control over your body. Fat has its own blood supply. Yeah. Talk, talk about that. This is where the alien analogy came, came <laughs> from. I mean, fat has its own blood supply. It's not going anywhere. Yeah, no, it can actually divert fat, uh, blood to itself. It's not unlike a tumor. So a, a tumor, uh, if it, when you study it, it actually has ways to divert the, the vasculature to itself. It directs veins to itself. It gets blood. It gets nourishment, oxygenation. Oddly enough, fat can do the same thing. When our fat starts getting crowded, it starts sending out signals that tell the blood that, hey, we need some blood supply here. We're starving. We are suffocating. And veins will grow in the direction of fat to start to feed it. And that in itself becomes another depository pathway for nutrients to get into your fat. So once you have fat, it has all kinds of ways to stay on you. One is by what we talked about, increasing your appetite, lowering our, your metabolism by lowering leptin. The other ways it can divert blood supply to itself. So it is very clever, and you can almost personify it like it's Jason Bourne. It's this clever thing inside your body, and you have to fight at the same level as it does if you really want to win. Well, that's a that's a, a nicer way of talking about <laughs> about fat than you know Alien and Sigourney yeah. Weaver. But let's talk about a person you write about, um, and that's a little girl named Layla. Yeah talk about her because this, this is fascinating. Yeah. So Layla was a, a young girl in Britain and uh, she had this unstoppable eating behavior. So since she was really a few months old, she couldn't get enough food and uh, she became obese and she would actually, it was not just a normal appetite, it was a pathological drive to eat. She would break into locked cupboards when her parents locked them to get food. And at one time, she even broke into a locked freezer to eat raw, frozen fish. It didn't have to be something that tasted good. She just had to eat all the time. And no one could understand what was wrong with her. Um, and then she was finally put in the hospital. They thought if she was, they restrict her calories, she'll lose weight. But she didn't. Even with very low calories, she continued to gain just slower in the hospital. And she suffered. And everyone thought she was headed for an early death due to uh, comorbidities from obesity. 
And all the while this was going on, Jeffrey Friedman at Rockefeller University was studying um, these obese mice. And there was, there was one obese mice that had the same behavior as Layla. He, it couldn't stop eating. And he finally studied it, and he determined that there's a gene, there's a defective gene in these mice. And what is it, it does is it does, their fat doesn't produce leptin. So the fat is no longer talking to the brain saying, we're here, you can stop eating. They're not getting the signal, these mice. They're continuously eating. And so it would, they did some tests on Layla, and they found that she had the same defective gene. And finally, uh, what Friedman was able to do is produce the protein this gene makes, and Layla was able to get leptin, and they started injecting it into her. And really, within days, her appetite subsided quite significantly. Hmm. And, uh, you know, she's fine now. Within a year, she lost the weight. Um, she's now, you know, off to a perfectly happy, normal life. Um, she's graduated college, getting ready to get married soon, and so it's, it's a happy ending. But these kids have existed for a long time, and usually they die quite young because of this problem. So talk more about the the, exper- the experiment with with these mice um it's sort of like a mouse version of frankenstein i'm oh. trying to i'm trying to visualize this yeah. it they they is it right that they took an obese mouse and a starving mouse or mice and st- Stitch them together. Yes, this is this is a kind of scary experiment, but it worked and it helped produce a great result. So this actually went on in uh, Jackson Laboratory in Bar Harbor, Maine, and it was Doug Coleman who first saw these really fat mice. And there was two fat mice. One was called DB, and one was called OB. And DB had a worse form of diabetes. So both mice, DB and OB, couldn't stop eating, and both had diabetes. But DB had much worse diabetes. And Coleman's idea was that there was something in the blood of DB that was causing this worse diabetes. He had this idea that he's going to put some blood from DB into OB and see what would happen. So he did this experiment. It's a technique called parabiosis where you can actually connect two mice together. You can sew parts of their skin together. You can have them exchange their circulatory system, hmm. their blood this way. And I know that sounds kind of freakish, and I guess it is, but yeah. it, you know, it's a technique that's used. <laughs> and um, what happened was when they exchanged blood, he, uh, Coleman thought that OB would get this worse form of, di- of diabetes, but that's not what happened. What happened instead is that OB stopped eating, completely stopped eating. So this mouse that couldn't stop gorging food suddenly stopped eating. And uh, it actually died of starvation, which was very mm. odd. And, and so Coleman had this hunch there's something in the blood that's not, in, in DB's blood, that's not intensifying diabetes. It's controlling appetite instead. And he looked for a long time. It, was, it came to be called the missing factor. There's some missing factor in OB. And that's when Friedman took over. And Friedman went and studied these mice. And that's when he determined that it was actually leptin. He found the missing factor. It was leptin. And it was that leptin that then helped Layla in Britain stop eating because she was very much like the OB mouse. Now, I want to remind people that um, we are taking calls. If you have calls for Dr. Sylvia um, about the secret life the secret life of fat, the number is 212 212- Four three three nine six nine two again two one two four three three nine six nine two. Is there a connection between um, weight gain and viruses? Yeah, so there's all kinds of ways we get fat. What we've talked about so far is how fat is an organ. It releases hormones, hormones that control our thinking, our appetite, our metabolism, and even have some beneficial effects. But fat, we have a lot of ways of getting fat as well. And most people think it's just overeating and fat people are lazy, they're slobs. In truth, there are people who are overweight who actually fight a good fight. But we have a lot of different ways our fat will accumulate. And one that's always shocking to people is that we can get viruses that actually help us get fat. And I tell the very interesting story of a scientist named Nikhil Durander who studied this quite a bit. 
He was in India at first, and uh, there was a virus that was hurting the poultry industry called SMAM1. And the odd thing about this virus is that it actually made chickens fatter before it killed them. And uh, he thought that was very odd. And then he tested people, and it turned out if they had had the SMAM1 virus, they too seemed to be fatter by about a 3 to 1 ratio. And he thought this is very surprising. And he actually left a thriving obesity practice behind in India to come to the U.S. on a lark, thinking he has to study this. He has to dedicate his life to this. And when he got to the U.S., he had a number of challenges, couldn't get a job for a while, couldn't get the virus to study. But, you know, in the end, he did get a job, and he did manage to find a similar virus in the U.S. called AD36 that is also correlated to fatness in humans. And so the way this virus works is that it helps cells absorb more glucose from the blood. You're absorbing more sugar. You're creating more fat molecules, and you're creating more fat cells. And so the fat cells you have are getting fatter, they're getting bigger, and we're creating more of them. And people who have the virus, there's about a double the risk of obesity for these people. It's actually two to three-fold higher than it is for people who don't carry the virus because the effects it has. And it's not that you have to be fat if you have the virus, but you do have to work harder. And I do tell the story of a man named Randy who for decades was living with this virus and didn't know it. And he was gaining weight, and he couldn't understand it. He wasn't eating much. He felt penalized. He felt judged. And he just really got himself to 350 pounds finally. He just really, you know, was gaining weight. And he finally was referred to this program at University of Wisconsin, which is what Nick Durander was. And finally, um, you know, Nick Durander uh, tests him, and it turns out Randy's positive for AD36. And all this time, he never knew it. Um, he believes he got it from uh, living on a chicken farm. He was scratched by a rooster at one point, and he thinks that's when it all happened. His, his hunger increased. That's when he started gaining weight. But in any case, when he finds out, Randy, that he's he's got this virus, he learns how to manage his fat. I, I, I've got lots of I, – I have lots of questions, but there are people on the line who, who have uh, questions. Let's hear from Chris. Chris is in New Jersey. Hello. Hi, Chris. Go ahead. Yeah, this is a good, quick question. It's sort of a – the inverse of what you're talking about. I've always been pretty trim and fit at about 150. I became a vegetarian, lost a little bit of weight, so I'm maybe eight pounds under what I used to be. And I lost it in places like my neck, so my shirts, collars don't fit as well, maybe a little loss in my face. So then I think, oh, I'm gonna gain the weight back, but how do I gain it back? If I try to do that, I get a little bit more around the waist and that's all I get. So I'm just wondering if there's a there's a way to gain fat where you want it. Huh, that's a great <laughs> – thanks, Chris. That, that is a great question. Don't you have a lucky problem that we all wish we had, uh, <laughs> that we couldn't gain weight? But anyway, if, if, you're, if you are trying to gain it and it seems like it's coming in, in the wrong places, men do have a tendency to gain more visceral fat, more belly fat than women. Yeah. Um, and, and that's <laughs> it's hormonal, and it depends on your age, too. As you get older, um, you know, men will get more visceral fat. Women will get it, too, so, you know, it evens up after menopause, but, you know, in those 40s or so is when it starts happening. I would really try uh, exercise. I give an example of sumo wrestlers in the book. So, you know, sumo wrestlers, by any you know, stretch of the imagination, they are obese. But our fat has another trick up its sleeve, and another reason it's an endocrine organ. It produces a hormone called adiponectin. And exercise actually promotes the release of adiponectin from our fat. And adiponectin helps guide triglycerides out of the blood and into subcutaneous fat. It also helps reduce visceral fat. Now, sumo wrestlers exercise for six to seven hours a day. They eat 5,000 calories, they're obese, 
exercise for seven hours a day, they have very little visceral fat. It's all right under the skin, even their belly fat. It's just under the skin, not under the stomach wall like visceral fat is that's nestled against your internal organs. So that's not unhealthy. So a sumo wrestler is probably a lot healthier than I am right now. Maybe. They don't have metabolic disease. Oddly, when they come off their diet, when they retire and they stop exercising, eat more processed food, they get metabolic disease quickly. But it's their exercise that actually helps move visceral fat from the visceral section underneath the stomach wall into subcutaneous fat in their arms, legs, and under the the skin. So they're actually metabolically healthy. So you don't have to exercise uh, for six to seven hours a day, but I think if you added an hour a day, it actually helps remove visceral fat and put into safer fat depots like your legs, arms, other places. We're going to take we're going to take more calls, uh, but we have to take this break. My guest is Dr. Sylvia Tara. She is the author of The Secret Life of Fat and is our guest on today's Please Explain All About Fat. We will hear fr- more from Dr. Tara after the break and take your calls and questions. I'm Jonathan Capehart in today for Leonard Lopate. This is WNYC and WNYC.org. <laughs> Jonathan Capehart in for Leonard Lopate, and we are talking about, well, the segment uh, we're in right now is Please Explain, and it's Please Explain Fat. And we have Dr. Sylvia Tara with us. She is the author of the new book, The Secret Life of Fat, the science behind the body's least understood organ and what it means for you. So, Dr. Tara, we're going to take a a couple more calls. Um, Let's go to Nas in Queens. Nas, are you there? Yes, I am. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. What What's your question? Um, I have a couple of questions. I well, the first is how. What's the best way to? I was reading about this and I didn't know I was in this category. Uh, the um, insulin resistant bodies. Um, because I've, I'm in my late thirties now. I've been a pretty active person pretty much my entire life, but. I've never actually had an athletic-looking body. Like, that visceral fat that you were discussing a few moments ago in the other segment, um, I have that. And no matter how many sit-ups, no matter the diet, like, that shape is always there. Hmm. So is there, a, is there a better way to perhaps achieve that frame for my body type? Or yeah. Great. Much, I'm not even sure if I'm asking that question, the right question. I'm basically trying to shred um, to get a slightly slimmer body type. I mean, I've lost right. weight. I've gained weight uh, at varying times in my life, but I've basically had the same shape. Right. Let's hear what Dr. Tara has to say. Okay. looks like she's got an answer for you, or at least an explanation. So it sounds like you have stubborn visceral fat, if I'm hearing you right, a big belly, and it, it doesn't go away no matter how hard you try. Well, it's not so big right now, but absolutely, yes. Yeah. Yeah, so there are different, you know, people. Genetics will play into this. Um, You know, our past yo-yo dieting will play into this. Race will even play into this. And so what you really have to, you have to try a lot harder than probably what people are telling you to do. I mean, one thing you should start doing is looking at low low insulin-provoking diets, looking at lower-carb diets. Um, if, you have, if you're insulin um, insensitive, then certainly eating carb-provoking foods isn't going to help. And there are ways to train your body to burn more fat, use more protein, and not be dependent on carbohydrates. And a number of books written on that. There's a small section of my book that's written about that as well. Um, you know, the other thing that I think works really well, and this is a bit harsh, but it's effective, it's intermittent fasting. It's something that I do, and I have found it to burn off belly fat really well. So you stop eating um, around, you know, 4 o'clock at night. You don't eat again until around 10 o'clock the next day. When you do intermittent fasting, uh, our growth hormone levels peak at night. 
So there's a lot of books written about the importance of insulin. What they don't write about so much that I write about in The Secret Life of Fat is growth hormone is also imperative for losing weight. So is testosterone. Those levels decline as you age, and there are natural ways to promote those. One is intermittent fasting. So growth hormone naturally peaks at night, and if you extend that overnight fast, you actually elongate the release of growth hormone in your body, and it busts fat like you can't believe. And so if you can manage to not eat around after 4 o'clock or so, you know, don't eat till like 9 or 10 the next day. It's hard to do. You will be hungry, but it'll bust right through that, that belly fat. And then also take a look. There's some exercise that I, I talk about in The Secret Life of Fat that will promote testosterone and growth hormone together, so strength resistance exercises. Um, like leg squats, uh, you know, four sets of eight leg squats and, and eight leg presses will do that. So will long bouts of aerobic activity. And um, some of this advice is, inter- advice is interspersed with, uh, throughout the books. You know, I'm sorry, there's not a go-to chapter here. You have to read the whole thing. But I do address, but the whole book is around stubborn fat. It's for people like me and like you who have a really hard time taking off fat. And these simple fad diets don't work on us. We have to dig a little bit harder and be smarter on how we manage our fat. Nas, I know you had a, a, another question, but we've got lots of people who have questions. So I want to thank you for your call and go to Alexa in Manhattan. Alexa, go ahead. Hi. Hi, Alexa. Hi. So just a little bit of background on my question. Um, I used to be a competitive um, bikini competitor, so I'm kind of used to dieting. And I recently went on like a short diet to cut down a little bit. And I noticed that um, after I stopped dieting, I did have like a weight regain, Um, not a huge one, but substantial in a quick amount of time. But it was the holidays. But what I did notice was that usually when I'd rebound, I'd have like a huge surge in uh, body fat, but this time my body fat levels didn't actually search that, that much, even though I gained like five pounds in like three weeks. And do you think that has to do with leptin levels? Or, I mean, I've definitely added muscle for my frame in, in, in that period of time, but it's, it was like a marked difference in how much fat I regained back. It was like really a small amount, even uh, in that short period of time. Like, is it possible that I? like somehow added more leptin in my body or that's really my question. Yeah, so if you gained weight and you're not sure, and there's a, there's a number of different explanations of it. I mean, if you've been working out, like you said, you might have gained more muscle rather than fat. Um, you know, you might have gained fat in a different area that doesn't show as much, and you know, hopefully it's not in the visceral area, but that's one area that doesn't show as much as if you gained it on your hips. So, you know, depending well, no, on I your age. I did a body fat. I did my body fat before my um, the weight loss and then afterwards, and my body fat was still substantially lower, even though I gained maybe half the amount of weight that I I had gained back. So you gained back less weight and you had less body fat. I guess that makes sense in that way. So anyway, there's a whole bunch of different explanations. I mean, so if you're under stress at the same time, that'll also burn fat. If you're releasing adrenaline for some reason, that'll burn through some of your fat. You won't gain as much. So there, okay. there could be a whole bunch of different reasons. And without knowing more and really digging in deep, hard for me to say exactly. But um, you know, it could be stress. It could be, you, you know, you're gaining it in different places. Or it could be you just you gain muscle if you were working out more. Thanks a lot, Alexa, for your call. Now, John... Um, has a question that is near and it, John, ask your question. Yeah, hi. Hi. Is, am I on the line? Yes, you are on the line. What is your question for oh, Dr. Tara? My question is I'm representing all the people who are over 50, men and women, who have stubborn areas of fat that they can't seem to get rid of even if they diet and even if they exercise on a regular basis. For the men, it's usually truncal fat around the waist. For the women, it's usually post-pregnancy fat or even later that they've just never been able to get rid of. And I'm wondering whether 
two questions really whether there's a leptin if someone takes an oral leptin is it available or is it only IV and is there such a drug that they can take to kind of help them lose weight and what is what is, what does your speaker think about the fad kind of things that have been advertised on the net like I think one's called Garnicia or Garantia I don't know exactly how it is whether or not these things are at all effective thank Thanks, John. Dr. Tara, what do you, what do you say? Yeah, so leptin actually isn't effective if you're not deficient in leptin. Uh, leptin actually works if you have a genetic defect where you don't make it, or it can actually work if you're depleted after you've dieted and lost weight and your leptin low. It can work there, but it's not available commercially for dieters. In fact, it's not even a phase one study as far as I know, so we're many years away from having that be an option for us. Um, some of the fad diets, I really am not a proponent of them. I think they're siren songs, a lot of these. Um, they lead people down a path. I mean, it's very easy to make a sale if you promise fat weight loss, and uh, <laughs> that's how people make money. In fact, we're not very different than we were in the 1930s or 40s where there was these funny fads like fat off soap and rubber suits to lose weight. I mean, there's a lot of different products out there that will promise this, and people will buy it because they're desperate to lose weight. But you really have to invest in the knowledge and, the, and understanding the science behind fat if you want to lose stubborn fat. Some of the fat you talked about, it's actually due to age. It's our hormone distribution. As we age, as I said, our hormone levels go down. Testosterone is down. Growth hormone is down. Estrogen is down. And it makes us deposit fat. Women will deposit in their hips, um, in their thighs more. Men will get visceral fat. But women will get visceral fat with menopause also. Some of it, it's really hard to move. Uh, There's one study done of, of male runners, 5,000 male runners, and this researcher noticed no matter what they're running, if they run 20 miles a week, 10 miles a week, they gain weight no matter what, hmm. right? So year after year, they're gaining weight. And the way they can counteract that, he said, is if you add 1.4 miles per week of running every <laughs> year. So if you're running 10 miles a week when you're uh, 30, by the time you're 40, you have to run 24 miles a week. And that was the only way they could really fit into their tuxedo from 10 years ago is if wow. they kept exercising more. It's just showing, showing that fat, it's a force of nature. We get more of it as our, we age, and it's not necessarily a bad thing. There's something called the obesity paradox, which shows that uh, you know people, when they get sick, you know they have a heart attack, they actually have a higher survival rate if they have more fat. And that's what makes it a uh, paradox. It's supposed to be that fat causes these diseases and shed as little as right. possible. But they find people who are actually underweight do worse at a time of trauma than people who have a little bit more weight. So it could be that we're you know, somewhat designed to have more fat as we age. It's a little bit protective as we age. What really matters is that you have a healthy profile. So a little bit extra fat on your hips. If you can keep your visceral fat low, you know, try some of the exercises I talked about. Try intermittent fasting. They seem to bust through visceral fat. But, you know, I've learned to live with a little extra fat, too. I don't look like I did when I was 20, and I'm okay. You know, it's healthy. <laughs> and maybe, you know, one larger clothing size. Well, Dr. Terry, let me ask you, what about carbs? Because, you know, I, I'm a gay man, and gay men talk all the time about no carbs. They're not going to eat pasta, not going to eat bread, not going to, not doing any of that stuff. Is that a proper thing to do? Should we be cutting out carbs? Depends on what diet you want to pick. There's no one diet that fits everyone. And I talk a lot about personalization of diets in my book. Um, a great experiment done in Israel, actually, where they looked at blood sugar levels of people, and they had them eat all different foods, and that they measured the blood sugar spike. Some people could eat chocolate. They could eat ice cream and not have any blood sugar spike at all. Right? And for those kind of people, they can eat carbs as much as they want. Other people certainly had spikes all over the place, even from things that don't typically cause it. So you need to really look at your body type, what works for you. These ketogenic diets, these low-carb diets, they work. I think when people get into trouble is when they're trying to do um, 
high carb and high fat at the same time. That is a recipe for storing fat. But you can actually do high carb, no fat. High, you know, that will work too. There's the pasta diet. I know people have done well on that. Um, there's diets that are high carb, but they don't have the fat to go with it. When you combine fat and carb together, that's when you have your insulin coming out, storing the fats away into your fat tissue. Low carb is okay because you're having a, you know fat and protein, but the insulin's not coming out to store it and put it right into your fat tissues. So if, if that makes sense, I hope I wasn't confusing on that, but I think you know there's a number of diets that work for different people. You can do low carb, uh, you can do uh, high carb, um, as long as you're not trying to do both, not trying to have your cake and eat it too. I think a number of diets can work for people. Um, I think we have time for one more call before we have to go. Sarah in Hamilton Heights. There. Um, I'm wondering, you liken fat to an organ and likened it to a tumor at, that can redirect veins, etc. What happens if you surgically remove some fat, i.e. liposuction? What does that do to your hormone levels, etc.? That's I'm a great question. so glad you asked it because <laughs> I didn't have time to bring it up. <laughs> so it's a great because when you remove fat surgically, there's actually studies done on this, and I report about this in The Secret Life of Fat. You know, you lose leptin. So it's not different than losing fat. When you, when you surgically remove it, your leptin goes down and your metabolism goes down. And there's a study done where they had women, um, they had liposuction done on their subcutaneous layer in their abdomen and in their legs, and uh, they separated this group into two. And then they had one group do exercise three times a week, one group do nothing, just went back to their life. The group that did nothing, they actually got some visceral fat back. So the fat grew back, but it didn't grow back from where it was taken from, not their legs and, and, um, and their subcutaneous fat. It grew back in the visceral area under the stomach wall. So it grew back, but to a less healthier area. But the group that exercised three times a week, actually the fat stayed off. And so it almost leads you to believe if you would just exercise a few times a week, you might not need the liposuction. So you know you do have the same effect um, if you have it surgically removed compared to if you lose it by, by eating less. So mm -hmm. that's a great question. Thanks for asking. So in the time that we have left, Dr. Tara, well, let's talk about the future of fat. Yeah. Because, um, you know, we had Will Schwalbe here and his New Year's resolution is, you know, he buys books, but he d buys, you know, these self-help books and he really loves diet books, yeah. knowing full well that these diet books books are not going to do anything in terms of helping him lose weight. So when we talk about the future of fat, what does that mean? What does that look like? Yeah, so I really do hope we get away from these fad diets and these simple one, two, three steps. I think, you know, number one, the future of fat is let's understand fat. Let's take a scientific look. Let's face facts. Let's not hide from them and just seek out a simple life and some simple slogan of lose fat quickly. So scientifically understanding it will help. There are, are some things on the horizon that we don't have yet. So injecting leptin back into people after they've dieted because they're leptin deficient at that point, that has shown to subside the appetite and increase metabolism, makes them almost normal again, where they're not driving to regain the weight. There's very interesting research on injecting brown fat into white fat. Now, brown fat actually burns calories. It's fat we have around our heart, our clavicle region, and it's brown because there's a lot of mitochondria, and it burns energy for heat. It keeps us warm. And there's white fat, of course, that hoards energy. But now experiments are, are where they're growing brown fat in dish or they're taking it from other body depots, injecting it back into white fat to see if it will help in, improve the, our metabolism and help burn calories. Cold exposure is interesting. Um, people swimming in the cold, you know, just, just staying in the cold, that also is something that's supposed to increase our brown fat stores. And so, Which uh, is a good thing. It's a good thing because brown fat, again, brown right. fat burns energy. Burns energy. Yeah, it doesn't store energy. And so all of that's on the horizon. For now, though, if you want to look at the here and now, um, there's medical intervention you could take if you feel you're really at risk. Of course, there's gastric bypass. There's liposuction if you want it. There's diet pills. There's hormone replacement therapy if you think you need it. 
and I'll leave that you know to you and your doctor if you think you have the risk profile that warrants it. But if you don't want to go down that path, then I have to say that here and now really is still diet and exercise. And I think that the key is to be very smart on how you do this. If you've had stubborn fat, other things have not worked for you, be smarter about how you eat. Eat for your microbiome. We have a lot of uh, bacteria in our gut. Some of that bacteria will extract more calories out of food than other types of bacteria. Um, we didn't have time to talk about that today, but I've got a full chapter on that in my book. So you can eat to tilt your microbiome to something leaner. You can eat for your hormones. We did talk a little bit about that, avoiding insulin and trying to prolong the growth hormone release. Um, you can exercise to promote your hormones as well. And so it's, a lot of books are written about insulin, insulin only, low carb. You know, But get smart. Start to learn about all your hormones and have all of them work for you at the same time instead of just focusing on one. I mean, talking about uh, exercise, I mean, you don't have to go crazy and be no. in the gym for mm -hmm. three, four, five hours. You don't have to have the sumo wrestler five-hour, six-hour routine. You can... What, is there a minimum you can do? Yeah. Yes, actually, don't exercise too much. I've been talking about it a lot. But remember, 80% of weight control is around food and diet. It's the other 20% that will really help you push over the edge and lose that extra weight you want. Now, if you exercise too much in the beginning, exercise also promotes a hormone from our stomach called ghrelin. And ghrelin is a hunger hormone. It makes us hungry. So if you exercise too much early, you get a hunger spike, and it negates just about all the work you did right, to, to lose weight and exercise. So don't exercise too much in the beginning. Get a handle on your diet, have it become habit, and slowly layer in about three days a week of exercise, about four or five hours if you can of exercise. Use HIT and use aerobic exercise and some strength building exercise. You have just explained why I am starving after my <laughs> 45 minutes on the elliptical. I've been speaking with Dr. Sylvia Tara. She is the author of The Secret Life of Fat. I'm so glad she could be our guest on today's Please Explain. Thank you so much, Dr. Tara, for joining us today. Thank you. Great to be here.